So this morning I'd like to spend just a little bit more time in this dimension of chitta. The contemplation of the mind is the mind. Contemplation of mind states as mind states. This includes our realm, of course, of emotions. To bring the same capacity to see and to know as we do to the body sensations and to Vedana. What we see is that mind states, emotional states, are very productive. They have a language. And the language is thought. This is the articulation of mental states, emotional states, comes through in the form of the thoughts that are produced. It becomes very clear that the thoughts, you know, there's a level of thinking in the day, isn't there? That's just what I call just like fireflies in the night, you know, thoughts that just arise and they're just passing through, basically. But mind states produce thoughts or emotional states produce thoughts that are very much flavored by the underlying climate of mind. You know, if we're very tied into a kind of anxious mind state, we don't generally have a lot of thoughts about how safe and protected we'd feel and how wonderful our life is. We have a lot of planning, a lot of rehearsing, a lot of strategizing. If we find ourselves in a mind state that's more aversive, contracted, we generally don't have a lot of thoughts of metta. So what happens is our mind state is often also superimposed upon the world and we think we're seeing the world around us where actually we're seeing our mind state. And, you know, this becomes very obvious to us when we, you know, walk through the building and, and highlight everything that is wrong. Um, you know, that's generally sort of an aversive mind state. You know, it's what we see. Mental states make perception selective makes perception selective. So we tend to perceive in line with the mind state just as we think in line with the mind states. Now, also what becomes more evident in our experience is that when there are more unhelpful, the difficult mind states or emotions or climate of mind, they tend to be more productive of a very big story, a very big narrative. You know, so an aversive mind state, an agitated mind state, will tend to have a much louder narrative, a much louder story. And we might notice in that often a much more pronounced sense of me within it. When there's a calmer, a more skillful, a more helpful mind state, calmness, generosity, kindness, uh, the story tends to be not very big. You know, we, we don't get up and think, you know, why am I feeling kind? I shouldn't be feeling kind. Where did that come from? You know, am I always going to be kind? It's just, it's just, like, it's just it, it, we tend not to do that. The, the more skillful, helpful emotional states tend not to be so productive. So it, this is not about good mind states and bad mind states. It's about what's helpful and what's not helpful, what's skillful and what's not, not skillful. Of course, what does happen in this is that the um, sorry the bigger, more more challenging, more difficult mind states they tend to produce a lot of narrative, and then of course the narrative turns back to further solidify and magnify the mental state itself. So you get into this closed feedback loop within mental states where they're producing the thoughts in line, the, the, those thoughts are coming back to strengthen the mental state. So a lot of mindfulness practice is clearly involved in breaking up the closed feedback loops that, you know, where we can feel so lost or so contracted or so obsessive. So part of contemplating mind states, of course, is contemplating the cognitive element of them, the whole thought production process. And the Buddha had quite a bit to say about this. And, and I, I, there, there is a word in Pali which I am extremely fond of. And I think if, uh, you know, if you're ever inclined to learn any Pali, this is a great one to learn. It's very helpful in our life. Papancha. 
papancha. It just kind of rolls off the tongue, you know, papancha. Papancha, if we were to translate into English, is the proliferation of thinking based upon underlying views, attitudes, and tendencies that colors and distorts our capacity to see things as they actually are. You got that definition? You want me to repeat it? <laughs> the proliferation of thought based upon underlying tendencies, views, and attitudes that colors and distorts our capacity to see things as they actually are. Papancha. When I find myself lost in a story, you know, I am like this, you are like that, the world is like this. This is just what is happening. The way things are being distorted by this proliferation of thinking. And, you know, the Buddha compared papancha as a kind of psychological vandalism. This is the way we undermine well-being. It's the way we undermine spaciousness. Now, it's very clear that this practice is not anti-thought. Okay, we have a, a need uh, be, to be able to draw upon a capacity to think clearly, to reflect, to investigate, to be creative, to discern, to discriminate. All of these things are part of the skillful use of thought. And then there's a way, of course, in which in this domain of papancha, we're moving into a way of thinking, a way of narrative building, um, which actually just does tend to, to undermine well-being, undermine the spaciousness of the heart. And the Buddha talked about these different threads of papancha, these different kind of streams of papancha, and I think this is quite helpful because it does become a kind of marker, a pointer to becoming more clear on what is supporting some of the narratives that we can feel so lost in. So he speaks about uh, aversion, dosa-based papancha, the stories we build that are really have this underlying emotional, mental state of resistance, dislike, not wanting, um, pushing away. We can hear a lot of that in our judgment stories, our shame stories, our blame stories. You know, that this is a version-based papancha. There's often quite a lot of, of uh, contempt, disdain, judgment expressed within it. And once it kind of gets going, it seems to have a life of its own, doesn't it? This goes on and on and on. And it talks about this tanha-based papancha, craving-based papancha, the sense of what I want, what I need, what I don't have, how I'm going to get it, how I'm going to keep it, how I'm going to get more of it, the pleasant experience, the pleasant taste, the, uh, the repetition of the last good sitting, the, the person I want to be with, the relationship I want to have, the ideal of, you know, the perfectly happy family and uh, colleagues. It's craving-based papancha. It's very busy. It tends to lean forward into the future. It's a sort of kind of dissociative papancha because it leans towards what we don't have rather than what is. There's a, a string of papancha, which is called bio papancha. It's, it's fear, anxiety-based. Hmm. Uh, the kind of, you know, uh, sensation in our knee or, or an illness, and we can see the mind wanting to, to kind of know and to pin it down and to figure it out, the anxiety about even an interview group, you know, where we find ourselves, you know, planning just the right thing to say, you know, and by the way, please don't rehearse for interview groups. Um, it, it's, it's this kind of anxiety-based papancha which is always wanting to, to guarantee certainties and safety and it, there's a lot of proliferation around it. It can attach to the body, it can attach to life situations. There's a, a stream of papancha which is called view, ditty papancha. <laughs> um, uh, it, it's, it's views, views, 
we don't know we have views until we meet someone who has a different view. But uh, then we see how many views we actually have. It, it's the whole domain of political views. Not, it's not political understanding, by the way. It's not uh, encouraging, you know, no, no reflection, investigation, political views, religious views, views about the world, you know, and we see views about people, you know, oh, everybody here is depressed, you know. It's a view, you know, it's a view which we superimpose upon the world and assume it to be the truth, actually, assume it to be the truth. And then here's the big one, it's mana papancha, the story about ourselves. The story about ourselves, the narratives we tell about who we are. You know, I'm good, I'm not so good, I'm doing well, I'm doing terribly, you know, I'm lovable, I'm unlovable, I'm adequate, I'm inadequate. The stories we tell about ourselves. So as I mentioned, this practice is not concerned with not thinking, but it is certainly concerned with calming down the papancha, because it is a distortion it's a distortion of how things actually are. And when there is distortion of how things actually are, we can be pretty certain that distortion is going to lead to struggle and to torment and to emotional and psychological sense of lack of well-being. So we're learning to calm down the narrative. This is probably the most challenging part of mindfulness because we have, do tend to have such an enchantment with our thinking in a such, uh, yes, an enchantment with our thinking. Uh, I mean, the, the Buddha had a pretty high bar around this. You know, you know, he said, a well-trained mind thinks the thoughts it wants to think when it wants to think them and doesn't think the thoughts it doesn't want to think when it doesn't want to think them. That's, it sounds very simple, but try it. <laughs> Just give that a go. <laughs> it's pretty challenging. So some people in the face of Papanchi, you know, become, feel so kind of weary, actually, of their endless storytelling that they can tend to become a bit brutal, you know, trying to squash that narrative, squash that story. And, you know, sometimes I think too much is made of this phrase of, you know, let go of your story. I, I don't think that's helpful. You know, our, our personal narrative is something to be understood. It's something to have clear comprehension about. It, it tells us a lot about how, how the choices we may have in how we live our life. And this practice is not about erasing our, erasing our personal story. That would be nonsensical. But I think sometimes when there's a weariness, there can come a kind of brutality of just trying to squash that thought. Anything we squash, you can be sure, is going to bounce right back with even increased fervor. So it's a question of understanding, and the way of understanding is actually how much can we come underneath a particular narrative and begin to trace the papancha themes. You know, is, is this view, is this anxiety, is this aversion, is this craving? Can we then, is this the self-story? And sometimes actually we can come back into the body and begin to trace those kind of emotional tones those emotional themes and actually practice within the body a calming those emotional themes, understanding them, embracing them with kindness, with compassion, allowing them to be, but unsticking, unsticking. It's kind of taking away the fuel from the narratives that are unhelpful, narratives, the constructions that are unhelpful. Sometimes very helpful in our thought streams to be able to, you know, when we see ourselves lost in one of these constructions, to be able to step back and just ask ourselves, you know, what is the fuel that's keeping this going? Really being aware that, you know, some of these kind of constructions, they, they don't have an independent self-existence. They do rely upon the fuel of constantly, you know, being, being ignited, being supported by the thoughts that are added to them. And, you know, in this teaching, the Buddha used a lot this analogy of blowing out the fire. Not blowing out life, but blowing out the fire. And, you know, it's very clear the way that you blow out the fire is you stop throwing logs on it. 
And sometimes the logs that are being thrown on it, of course, are calm within the, both the enchantment level and, and then through that, the kind of uh, perpetuation, the proliferation of the thinking. Mindfulness of the body is a great ally in this. Mindfulness of the sense doors. In the, learning to use the sense doors wisely. Learning to come into the body. Not to have the anticipation necessarily that the narratives won't arise. They do. But can they be met both with kindness? Can they be met with clarity? Can they be met with that willingness to kind of pull the plug on the, on the story building? Is it, this probably allows us actually to see more clearly what's actually going on rather than attempting to erase the narrative. Coming back to what is, what is really supporting that whole constructing process. This is a great skill, not only for our retreat. This is a life skill. The world, our relationships with others and with ourselves are actually really not helped that much by aversion or by craving or by views or by self-view or by anxiety. Mostly our capacity to live our life well, fully, is really rooted in our capacity not to be lost, but to have that inner, inner groundedness and clarity. So we're not short of opportunities to practice with papancha. And to be curious about it, to be interested in it, to be able to come back to a sense of balance and simplicity and calm. Okay, so again, just taking our seat. Establishing mindfulness within the body, within this moment, however it is. That willingness to to meet the moment with curiosity, with our capacity for, for calm investigation, for steadiness of heart. established within the body, clearly discerning of all of the moments when the attention is drawn elsewhere, knowing these moments too are worthy of the same mindfulness, the same calmness, the same clear discernment. Taking that moment of pause before returning the attention to the body,
Today is a precious day for practice. We're very much in the heart of this retreat, having had now five days deepening together in mindfulness, heartfulness, wisdom. To really give oneself fully to this day of practice. I'm often reminded, and it seems very apt here at IMS in July, of a teaching offered by Shanti Deva, who's a wonderful teacher, poet, and mystic, and lived in India in the sixth century. And he once said that we could practice with the enthusiasm of an elephant who, being tormented by the heat of the midday sun and biting flies, would plunge into a pool of cool water. And I rather love that image of just the sort of the not holding back and plunging into a pool of cool water. And we could perhaps understand that the, the heat of craving, the way it burns, and the, the bite of aversion, the way it hurts, is something we deeply in our hearts seek relief and release from, the cooling of the heart, the mind, the body. And that this practice offers us that pool of cool water, this capacity to be with, to open to, to see clearly, to soothe that which may be sore or tender, and to begin to penetrate more deeply and more deeply into our life. So continuing today in the walking meditation to dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to this form of walking back and forth mindfully, steadily, noticing at times when it may be clear to you the state of mind that's arisen. And if the tendency for patterns of thinking to arise driven by that state of mind, the papancha that Christina spoke about, really knowing it for what it is, to see clearly the suffering it brings, the suffering inherent in the very lostness that the papancha creates, that the unconscious thinking generates. Understanding clearly the difference between judging and rejecting it and having the capacity to see it clearly and to step out of it, to reconnect with our body. Often it's useful to stand still for a moment and just notice the impact in the body of when we've been lost in some train of thought, unconsciously driven or drawn away. And just feel what that's like for a moment. The tendency to contraction or disconnection that that reveals. That's actually uncomfortable for us, painful to us. And so out of compassion for ourselves, out of compassion for this life, we can re-engage, again, wholeheartedly, with commitment and resolve. The Buddha, before he sat down underneath the Bodhi tree, he f made a resolve which was as regarded in the tradition as the perfecting of the capacity of resolve, nikamma one of the wonderful qualities of the human heart that can be developed and perfected. And he said, before he sat down under the Bodhi tree, still an ordinary human being like ourselves, not yet an enlightened Buddha, he said, I will not move from this place. I will not move from this place, though my blood runs dry, though my bones turn to dust. I will not move from this place until I have understood that which can be understood by human endeavor.
And I find when I repeat those words, as I often have cause to, that it touches me deeply, that commitment, that sense of I will not move from this spot. And I think one doesn't have to take literally the um, blood running dry and the bones turning to dust here. And it's not necessarily literally that I will not stay on this cushion all day either. And it's, it's the place of our intention. It's the place of our commitment. The place that we are cultivating here is not a physical location or a physical posture. It's an inner orientation that we are asked to establish ourselves within and to sustain unwaveringly. That willingness to see, the willingness to meet, the willingness to deeply experience what's happening and yet to contemplate it with wisdom, to see it come and go, to see that doesn't generate or evidence or establish any fixity in terms of what is what we call ourselves or equally what it is that we call the world. It's a fluid, interactive, constantly reforming and dissolving process. Dissolving and reforming process. So we start to notice the fluidity of life, the fluidity of experience, and start to live in the spirit of that, just one step at a time, one moment at a time. When we go into the meal time and the dining room, including that period fully, the taking of food, the eating of it, the tasting, the swallowing, the lining up afterwards to clean one's dish. It's all our life. Don't leave anything out. And equally, the fullness of the day. So make good use of this time. And uh, again, there will be small group interviews beginning this mo- or continuing this morning. If you didn't have one yesterday, you will have one today. And that will be the third and concluding interview for, of the cycle for the group's meeting today. And there are also some spaces for individual interviews. So, practice well and be well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.